it's the more important doctrine of the two, vertical forgiveness. I mean, what would you say is more important? God's forgiveness of you or your ability to forgive interpersonally? God's forgiveness of you, right? So he's trying to persuade us, saying that's the more important doctrine. And we, as sort of a biblical counseling church, tend to focus on horizontal. Now, like I said, there's good reason for that. Horizontal forgiveness is probably the more practical doctrine. And it's uh, less intuitive. I mean, we, we, and of course, maybe intuitive is the, bad, the wrong word, but we are steeped in the gospel. And so we understand that God forgives us and he forgives us on the basis of what Jesus did. Working that out and the willingness to work it out uh, interpersonally is not something that right, jumps right out at us when we're dealing with conflict interpersonally. So it's not bad that we that we focus on that. But uh, as this elder suggested to the rest of us that we do a series on uh, vertical forgiveness, it sort of got my gears turning. And I think he mentioned in that original conversation back in January, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and the parable of the unforgiving servant, the unforgiving slave there. Uh, and feel free to open there if you want. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Uh, and Randy Barlow, who's going to do part two this afternoon, he may actually spend some time in that text. I'm not sure if he's going to or not. But anyway, I just want to point out one thing from the parable that Jesus tells there. And I hope this is something that you'll take away from this hour and from the final hour from today, even if mostly as an unstated implication from these two lectures. And that is this. The fact of God's forgiveness of us is a huge motivation in Scripture for us to do hard things. It's just a huge motivation, and that's what that parable shows. Through the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus teaches that we ought to be forgiving to one another. It ought to be easier and even, in a sense, natural for us to have mercy on others if the Lord has had such mercy on us to forgive our unpayable debt. And the details of that parable in Matthew 18 bear that out. And so, of course, that's true. Uh, from Matthew 18 when it comes to interpersonal forgiveness. But this is a principle that also reaches to a more fundamental level. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Paul strikes a similar note in Colossians 1, verse 29, when he writes of striving with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. Verses like these point to a truth with which we're well familiar, right? We don't believe in a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps model of sanctification. Of course, there's effort involved, but there's also a God-given heart. There's energy that God powerfully works within us to animate our all-out effort. And that's what we see in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, is that the forgiveness, the exorbitant forgiveness of the master is supposed to, it's just common sense, it's supposed to motivate a heart of forgiveness on the part of the servant who is forgiven. And so, as we know also, although God is sometimes kind to seemingly flip a switch and cause us to not struggle with a sin anymore like unforgiveness, more often we can see the means God uses. We can see the truths he gives to convict us, the instructions he gives to inform us. We can see the preachers and the counselors he brings our way to exhort us and to stir us up, to put off our sin and to put on God-graced works of love. And so it is also with the matter of how we get an enlarged heart so that we would run in God's ways or so that we would get his energy that he powerfully works in us so that we would do his will, so that we would, uh, what does he say, strive with all of that energy that God works in us. How we get the will and the energy to struggle and strive against sin and positively to do the difficult things that love often requires. We can see the means God uses there also. So in a word, perhaps the central or the primary way God enlarges hearts and supplies energy to run in his ways is by the reality of his forgiveness. And so kind of as an indicative to the imperative of interpersonal forgiveness or really any other aspect of sanctification we might focus on, a preliminary, probably the primary preliminary, the primary indicative is God's forgiveness of us. And so in a movement or in churches where we really spend a lot of time talking about the horizontal, uh, we want to spend some time talking about rehearsing and even gaining some biblical clarity 
on that vertical forgiveness. And so here we are. We're going to have two separate hours in which to reflect on God's forgiveness of us in hopes that it will enlarge our hearts to run in God's ways and also that it will equip us with a greater understanding of the realities of God's forgiveness in such a way that we'll be able to help those to whom we minister to gain a better grasp of these wonderful truths. So would you take a moment with me and pray uh, with me to that end? Please bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the occasion of this conference and for the hospitality of Grace Bible Church and just for the opportunity to all be together and to consider these things. Father, you've told us that as we uh, consider things like these from your word, as we behold the glory of Christ in the scriptures, that you send your spirit to minister among us so that we would become more closely conformed to the image of your sign. We ask, Father, that you would do that work even in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I've just tried to do is introduce this two-part block, uh, this hour and then the final hour today, on vertical forgiveness. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me another brief moment as I introduce the aspect of God's forgiveness on which we're going to focus in this first hour. We start with God's forgiveness and our curse. And we do so because this is where the Bible starts in terms of our need, in terms of the situation that we're in apart from Christ. And this is a situation that begins in the Garden of Eden with the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Beginning there and from the events that ensue with the fall of man in Genesis 3, we can trace the Bible's theology of curse. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to do so according to the outline in your notes. You'll find there the three key facts about curse that if you can get your head around these key facts and if God causes these truths to sink into your heart, These key facts about curse will have the effect of making you love Jesus more. So the key facts, number one, the unspeakable ruin of curse. Number two, the deserving objects of curse. And then third, the complete removal of curse. Now, although I've divided the facts about curse into these three categories, you can probably tell from your notes, if you glance at subsequent pages, that we're going to give more attention to the third point, the complete removal of curse, than to the other two. And that's that's a good thing. That'll uh, make us feel better in the end. Uh, but as, and as you may have heard before, the good news for it to be really good, first you need to know how truly bad the bad news is. And so we start with number one, the unspeakable ruin of curse. Now, again, bear with me. We're going to back up even even a little further. I talked about Genesis 3, but we want to back up actually to Genesis 1. In order to know how truly bad the bad news is, we need to be reminded of how good and how full of life everything was when God created it all. And so, actually, open your Bible to Genesis 1, first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I'm just going to point out some things from the text. And let me just say uh, up front, there are a couple, so I did this for our adult Sunday school And there were several points at which I said, you remember in the sermon from this text, I've been preaching through Genesis. So I took those references out, but I'll just say, especially when it comes to the promise in Genesis 3.15, I don't have time in this lecture to unfold that uh, like it deserves to be unfolded. So if you have interest in some of these earlier texts from Genesis that I'm going to be referencing and hearing those unfolded further, you can go to cbcfortworth.org or Calvary Bible Church's uh, app on the phone, and you can hear the Genesis sermon series. I've gotten through chapter 5 now in Genesis in that series. So Genesis chapter 1. Notice here how many times God said that what he created was good. Verse 4, the light was good. Verse 10, he says, it was good. Verse 12, it was good. Verse 18, it was good. Verse 21, it was good. Verse 25, it was good. And then verse 31, after the creation of man and woman, with response to that in particular and everything in general, he says it was very good. So that's a major emphasis there. God's creation is good, and the consummate statement concerning it is that it is very good. So goodness. Similarly, note God's blessing in Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 22, God blessed Adam and Eve. Verse 28, God blessed Adam and Eve. Chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day, which was representative of completion. Uh, This was the reality God had created, and now it would be this way. There would be this rest in perpetuity. 
So all of this goodness and blessing, chapter 1 and 2, coming from God. Likewise, note how life comes from God. Chapter 1, verse 20, God creates living creatures in the water and in the air. Verse 24, God creates living creatures on the earth, the cattle and all land animals. Verse 28, God gives man as the steward over all life on the earth. Then verse 30, God gives all vegetation the nourishment needed for life to every living creature on the earth. And then most directly and most importantly in chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Friends, it couldn't be more clear that life comes from God, and particularly that the life of man comes from God. So all goodness comes from God, all blessing comes from God, and all life comes from God. So much goodness, such vitality, and God's blessing to that life by his good provision of everything needed to sustain it. And so if you think about it that way, in terms of this huge emphasis on God's abundant provision of goodness and life, then it it might be a little jarring when we read this in verse 17 of Genesis 2. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Did you catch the words I emphasized there? Evil, the Hebrew word ra'ah, which is the same as the word for bad. So all of this goodness and then this sort of abrupt contrast, verse 17 in chapter 2, bad, evil. And then die, the verb form of the Hebrew word muth for death. What a contrast, isn't it? To get to the devastation of curse, the curse that came and has been with us since chapter 3 of Genesis, we need to see its contrast with the goodness of God in his blessing and in his gift of life. And when we get to chapter 3, we find the outworking of this contrast, that when Adam and Eve had eaten from the forbidden fruit, they became alienated from God. And this is curse in its essence. Separation from God as the source um, missed the advancement there. Separation from God is the source of life and goodness. That is curse in its essence. We see this work out in the details of the rest of Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Verse 8, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. You see, Adam and Eve know their alienation and they willfully hide themselves from their source of life. And then we read God's words in verses 22 and 23. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So, although it's not without promise, and that's the promise of verse 15 in chapter 3, Although it's not without promise, God from his side separates man from his special presence in Eden and from that provision from the tree of life of sustained eternal life. Again, this is curse in its essence, separation from God and his life-giving goodness. And that curse, its essence, is reflected in the suffering and the pain and the physical death which become universally experienced and lamented in the effects of the curse. We see this unfolded and lived out in the subsequent history recounted in Genesis. And here I'll just give a bullet point summary. The woman is promised pain and childbearing and difficulty in marriage in chapter 3, verse 16. And immediately following, the man is promised difficulty with his work until the day he dies. In chapter 4, with the story of Cain and Abel, we find the first human death, which is also the first murder. By chapter 6, we see such universal and thorough wickedness among men that God speaks of regretting that he made man in Genesis 6. What we find is having been separated from God, the source of life, that man becomes utterly sinful and miserable under the effects of curse. Then, when we come to Genesis chapter 7, we find the most devastating account of curse in the whole Old Testament. God floods the whole world such that every living creature, every man, woman, child, and animal on earth, each and every one is brutally and painfully put to death. 
Can you imagine the horror? Many crushed, no doubt, by the weight of floodwaters and rushing debris. Many more certainly killed by drowning. Whereas God had given the breath of life, he now withheld it in one of the most painful ways imaginable. The lungs made to take in air, instead taking in water. A provision for life turned into a a means of death. Until the life of each and every man, woman, child, and creature on the earth was choked out so that they were no more. Is that description a little unsettling? Even with what I've just described, it's possible that the scope and the magnitude of this could be lost on us. You know, we're, we're accustomed to hearing the story of the flood with animals and, you know, pictures of Noah and rainbows. And really, it's, it is a devastating account when you stop and think about the details. And like I said, even with, with the description I gave, it's possible that the magnitude could be lost on us. Because our understanding, and we see this in the rest of Scripture, even Peter talks about it, we know that there were only eight people left on earth after this. We don't think about the potentially immense population that there was on earth. Um, And I looked this up with answers in Genesis. Um, Those guys look carefully at the Bible, and they also crunch numbers, so they're good for data like this. And they say that due to longer lifespans, and therefore likely a higher population growth rate, that it is reasonable to think that the world's population at the flood was in excess of 4 billion people. So think about that. I mean, it's not for certain, but it's, it's not a small number. It's not a small number of people that this happened to. Now, this gets to an aspect of curse I haven't directly mentioned yet. The essence of curse is separation from God as the source of goodness, but God's relationship to curse is not a passive one. Curse is not simply the removal of goodness. Curse, biblically, is directly connected with God's wrath, with his active anger. And we see this perhaps most clearly, as I've said, when we get to the flood. God's active anger against a world of men, women, and children who have descended into the depths of depravity and rebellion. God's active anger against every creature such that he is willing to literally pour out on them in such a way as to crush and suffocate them. Perhaps, like I said, as many as four billion people everyone on earth, crushing them and suffocating them until they are destroyed and brought to nothing. This is the unspeakable ruin. You might also say the unspeakable horror of curse. God's pure, wrath-filled anger against sin poured out on creatures, poured out especially on man, on people. Friends, look rightly at the flood and you will see God's wrath-filled curse is staggering and devastating. It's the unspeakable ruin of curse. And closely connected with this is our fact number two about curse, the deserving objects of curse. Now, you probably picked up from what we've looked at already, not to mention that this is something obvious to us, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, even from general revelation, that the deserving objects of curse are rebellious sinners, which is everyone right? Everyone deserves God's wrath. And it would probably be good enough to leave it at that were it not for the way that God purposes to communicate throughout scripture, how it is that he causes every mouth to be closed so that all the world may become accountable to God. God, God, God goes to the trouble of explaining this to us. And actually you may recognize that language from Romans three, and that is a good place to start. Um, and go ahead and open there. Romans chapter three. And we're going to look just for a minute at verses 19 and 20. Really, I'm just going to read them. Uh, But it's good to see the details there. Romans 3, starting with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of God. Of sin. So what I want you to see here is how the whole world becomes accountable to God. It is through the law, and that is through the Mosaic law. And this is a technicality, but it's an important one. And you might recognize this has judicial overtones, the law. And can you think of what else has judicial overtones besides 
accountability. I'm sorry? Slavery. I have in mind something more positive. Justification. Salvation. Yes. And that is part of why this is important. You see, we find early and often, starting in Genesis, that sin leads to death and that that death is deserved. Adam and Eve were warned of sin's consequences and they deserved to die when they sinned. The potentially billions of people on earth at the time of the flood were so wicked. It is inescapable in Genesis 6 and 7 that they deserved to die. That's what we're gathering from the narrative there. God's curse is richly deserved by every one of us. We know this. Paul argues this in Romans 5, that we're all guilty in Adam. A reality that is evident from the fact that everyone from Adam to the giving of the law died, even though there was no new law given to them like the one given to Adam. So that's, that's Paul's argument in Romans 5. Something else Paul does in his argument there in Romans 5, and also in what we saw a minute ago in Romans 3, is he points to a key that helps us to understand the function of the law as it relates to curse and also, crucially, to salvation. Where does the original curse, the original warrant for our death, the reason everyone dies, where does that original curse come from? I mentioned it a moment ago. It comes from the fact that Adam and Eve were given this simple and gracious choice. God said to them, eat freely from this abundance I've provided and live. Or eat from the one thing I've forbidden and die. And because of the choice he made, Adam and we in Adam are guilty and deserving of death. And again, that just desert is displayed as God deals with mankind as a whole through the events of the flood. But within Genesis, there soon comes a transition from God dealing with man as a whole to God dealing with nations after scattering everyone at Babel. And what we find is that God chooses the nation Israel as the object of his blessing. And not only as the object of his blessing, God chooses Israel as the nation through which he would mediate his goodness to the whole world. And much like the simple, gracious choice God gave to Adam and Eve, he gives a gracious, simple choice to the nation of Israel, saying to them, in essence, I am bringing you into a good land in which I will dwell with you. And this, the, the reference there is Leviticus 18, verses 1 to 5, which becomes a key text throughout the rest of Scripture. It's alluded to it several times. So God is giving them this simple, gracious choice. I'm bringing you into a good land in which I will dwell with you. This good land has been occupied by wicked men. To rid this good land of its pollution, I will vomit these wicked people out. You are not to have mercy. In fact, you are to execute my justice against them and particularly against their leaders. So God says to Israel, you have a simple choice. It is, uh, as you respond to this call, you have a simple choice. Follow the good law of life I am giving you and live. That's Leviticus 18.5. And as you live, you will mediate this life and blessing to the whole world. Israel's job was to stay and proclaim the glory of God and have the world come to this truth about God, this good law that he was giving them. So that's the positive side. Or, negatively, follow the law of death of the peoples being vomited out of the land and be cursed and be vomited out yourselves. This is like Adam's choice before them, a simple choice for Israel, life or death, blessing or curse. And much like Adam had the opportunity to obey and through his obedience to mediate God's goodness to all of creation, Israel also had the opportunity to obey and through their obedience to mediate God's goodness and blessing to all creation. Israel became, in that part of the story of Scripture, the hope of the nations for blessing. But how did that go? In much the same way as the instruction to Adam became death and curse to all humanity, the law of life given to Israel, which promised blessings for obedience before long became a curse to the nation of Israel. God scattered them for their disobedience, and the more his prophets came and preached his law and judgments, the more they went astray and experienced his curse. And as they did, the law through which they were to become a blessing to the nations actually became a curse not only to Israel, but also to all the nations as well. 
This is exactly how the Bible speaks of the effects of Israel and its law. And here's just a sampling. Jeremiah 29, verse 18 and 19, God says this. I will make Israel a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they have not listened to my words, declares Yahweh, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen, declares Yahweh. Similarly, Zechariah writes in chapter 8, verse 13, that Israel and Judah had become a curse among the nations. This accords with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, which he directs to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, saying that the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that is the law of Moses, represented an object of enmity against us, leaving us excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And of course, as we read a moment ago from Romans 3, the effect of that law through Israel became to close every mouth and to make all the world accountable to God. Now again, to review what we've seen here, and I'm just going to sort of list these off, God destroyed in the flood the entire world, which was richly deserving of his curse, having his wrath poured out in their utter ruin. God then began working through the nations, dispersing power and capability among the nations so that their achievements would be limited. That's what happened at Babel. God chose then the nation Israel to be a blessing, but warned that they would become a curse if they disobeyed. Israel repeated Adam's folly, choosing death, and became a deserved and deserving curse to themselves and to all the world. Israel was supposed to display God's goodness and blessing and to cause the world to draw near to that blessing. Instead, Israel became a ghastly display of God's curse and repelled the entire world from God's blessing. So, again, the question, who is the deserving object of curse? Adam is, Eve is, Israel is, every nation is, I am, you are. We, every last man, woman, and child, we are the richly deserving object of God's curse. Our first parents faced a simple and gracious choice. They sinned and their guilt is justly imputed to us. Israel faced a simple and gracious choice. That nation, with every provision and every grace imaginable, rejected the law of life and blessing and mediated curse and death to the world instead. Every mouth has indeed been stopped, and the whole world is absolutely accountable to God. But thankfully, the universal warrant for curse was not the only thing God built into the law of life. We have seen, first, the unspeakable ruin of curse, secondly, the deserving objects of curse, and now we come to the third and the best fact about curse. Number three, the complete removal of curse. Now here we approach a theology that finds its roots in Genesis 3, verse 15, what's called the Proto-Euangelion, or first gospel in the Bible. As I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to have that text unfolded for you in detail, you can access it on our app or on our website. It's called, the sermon from that text is called God's Solution for Sin. And it was back on January 17 of this year. Briefly, what we find in the grammar of Genesis 3.15 is that there is an intentional interplay in that text between the many and the one. And careful exegesis of Genesis 3 indicates that from the very earliest days, starting with Eve herself, from the very earliest days, God has granted saving faith, faith that makes spiritually alive. God has granted saving faith by means of his promise that the curse due to the many would one day be removed in the one. And this theology is developed and built on throughout the the whole Old Testament. Briefly, This hope of salvation is expressed and carried through Noah and his family as they become a tiny remnant through the the worldwide flood. It is reiterated and expanded on in the covenant with Abraham as God promises to include all nations in the blessing that would come through his seed, the Messiah. 
And this hope is confirmed as Israel becomes a great nation in the womb, so to speak, of Egypt, and as God begins to bring them to the land from which they are to mediate his goodness to the whole earth. But then, as we've seen, what happens next? Does Israel jump into faithfully fulfilling this good and graciously simple calling to reject the death laws of the nations and live out God's good law of life? Sadly, no. In fact, the opposite quickly happens, and it happens time after time. Israel turns away from trusting in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, to become covenant breakers who lust after the gods and ways and perceived pleasures and strengths of the nations. One such case is hugely consequential in terms of beginning to set the stage for how God would ultimately follow through on his promise, even through rebellious Israel. And I would ask you just to turn for a, for a minute or two to, your, to Numbers 25 in your Bibles. Numbers chapter 25. When we come to Numbers chapter 25, Israel has just won two unlikely victories, one over the nation and king of Bashan and the other one over Sihon. And so having heard of these victories, Moab, together with their king Balak, they become afraid and they seek a way to withstand the impending threat from the nation of Israel. And you guys remember who Balak hires in an effort to overcome that threat? It's the prophet Balaam. And you guys remember Balaam and his donkey. And Balaam's experience with the donkey and the angel of Yahweh ensures that Balaam is only going to speak the words that Yahweh gives him. And so instead of cursing Israel like Balak and Moab wanted him to do, Balaam instead blesses them and speaks of their glory through their promised Messiah. And it's, it's fascinating to trace the seed promise all the way through the Old Testament is just a, a glorious thing. And we can't do that. But this is one of those places, Numbers 23 and 24, it happens, uh, where that promise comes up again. So Balak, king of Moab, is understandably upset with Balaam for doing the exact opposite of what he'd been hired to do. He blesses Israel instead of cursing them. But we find Balaam isn't finished. Although he couldn't curse Israel, he thinks of another way to help Moab. Balaam's counsel to Balak and all of Moab was to tempt Israel with the fleshly allurements of its, of its licentious, sensual, and lawless idolatry. And Numbers 25 tells us how that went, verses 1 through 3. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and Yahweh was angry against Israel. So what we find here is that Israel goes the way of disobedience. Rather than choosing the law of life of Yahweh who has blessed them, rather than following that law of life, Israel instead follows the statutes and ordinances of the nations as they join up with the Moabites to engage in their idolatry and their immorality. Now notice what comes from Yahweh in response to all of this. The end of the verse in verse 3, Yahweh was angry against Israel. This is God's active anger, his curse, breaking out against his people. But notice the instructions God gives in verse 4 in the midst of all of this. Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh so that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. So first we see God's wrath, his angry curse breaking out against his people. But in the next verse, he gives a way for his wrath, his fierce anger to be turned away from them. What is the way he gives for this to happen? Yahweh's wrath will be removed when the people's leaders are executed. And this is carried out in the text, starting in verse 5. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 
So let's review what we have here. We have the disobedience of the nation Israel as they rebel against God and go the way of other idolatrous nations. Then we have the wrath of God, his curse, breaking out against them to slaughter them in his fierce anger. We have instruction from God to appease his wrath by executing the nation's leaders. And then finally, we have that carried out as Phineas pierces through one of Israel's leaders who was participating in the rebellion. And just note from verse 14 that the man executed was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of the father's household among the Simeonites. So Phineas obeys God and executes one of Israel's leaders, one of the household leaders within the tribe of Simeon. And what is the result? That God's anger, God's curse is removed from the people. Now, you would be right to ask, why does this perhaps obscure story from Numbers 25 matter in this discussion? And the answer is because it provides the context for Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. There, and you can turn there if you'd like, Deuteronomy 21, starting with verse 22. There, Moses writes this, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not not defile your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. What we see here is that these verses establish in the law the means by which the defilement or the pollution of curse may be removed. I won't take the time to go through all the details on this, but I will mention that those verses, verses 22 and 23, come as sort of a crescendo in their context. Of all the big sins and consequences, this is the biggest in Deuteronomy 21. The one that comes just before it is the consequence of stoning to death for anyone in Israel who would dishonor his parents. But compared with that offense and its consequence, this one is set apart. And it is set apart in a few ways that clearly connect back to Numbers 25. The one who is to be executed in this way is bearing God's wrath. He is bearing the curse of God. This is the law's provision to remove the pollution or the curse from the promised land to which God is bringing them to be a blessing. And then finally, if the people will deal with the cursed representative in his body in this way, then the pollution, together with God's curse, will be removed from them and from their land. So now, all of this is established in the law for how sin, how the pollution of sin can be removed from the land. And what we find is that this happens several times later in Israel's history. First, and I'm not going to ask you to turn to these passages, but you can if you'd like, we find a couple of examples in the narrative account of Israel's conquest of Canaan. In Joshua 8, when Israel defeats Ai, we read in verse 29 that Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. So he's fulfilling that requirement, these people are being vomited out of the land and their pollution is removed here by handling the king, the body of the representative in the way prescribed in Deuteronomy 21. Then in Joshua 10, after Israel had defeated the armies of the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, all in one battle, we read beginning in verse 26, so afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees. So these are the kings of these five nations. And they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. So in the conquest, as recorded in Joshua, Israel followed the statute set forth in Deuteronomy 21 and modeled originally in Numbers 25. The kings of God's enemies were executed by piercing through by hanging on trees. Their bodies were handled according to the statute and their pollution was removed from the land and its people so that they could be blessed rather than cursed. Now there is at least one other text where this statute is implemented in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 21, God's anger burned against Israel for three years 
manifesting, manifesting in three years of famine. So his anger burned against him. Again, his active anger of, of curse. When David sought the presence of Yahweh, it says, Yahweh revealed that the reason for his anger was the blood guiltiness of the house of Saul for his murder of the Gibeonites. And so in response, David gave seven descendants of Saul to the Gibeonites for them to hang on trees as representatives. Now, although they failed to handle the bodies according to the statute, once David saw to it that they were removed and buried, we read in verse 14 that God was moved by prayer for the land. So that that act of anger is removed and the famine is ended. Okay, so I realize that I've dumped a whole lot of biblical data on you. But I'm giving all of that to you for a good reason. What we've seen here is how God developed in the Mosaic Law and in its implementation in later scripture in Joshua and 2 Samuel that God has developed a theology of curse. And perhaps even more importantly, he has developed here a theology of the removal of curse from his people and their land so that he could bless them instead of cursing them. Now, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading here from verse 13. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And here's the key part. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, God had established that his wrath could be removed from a people in its land if its king were executed as their representative. His body pierced through and hung on a tree and then buried in a timely manner according to the law. And here in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul connects the death of Jesus directly to that theology developed in the Old Testament as he quotes Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Israel surely did not see this coming, certainly not at first, that Yahweh himself, in the person of the Son, their King, Jesus Christ, would be cursed for them, hung on the tree, cursed of God in their place. That God would make him, Paul says, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is what Jesus was anticipating in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked three times that the cup, the cup of the wrath of God, the cup of God's curse, he asked three times, if possible, that this cup would be removed from him. This is what Jesus was responding to on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was his experience like in that moment? Remember, I said that God's curse is not something passive. It is his active, fierce anger against sin directed at the object of his curse. Here I'm going to borrow from Paul Washer, who says that he got these words from R.C. Sproul. And Sproul is getting these words mainly from the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now as I read this, it may be a little bit uncomfortable for you, and it should be. It should be sobering and maybe even a little shocking. When Jesus is hanging on the cross... He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God from heaven answers back, The Lord, the Lord your God curse you. The Lord send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. The Lord smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart, and you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness with none to save you. The Lord delights over you to make you perish and to destroy you, and you will be torn from the land. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is beneath you iron. You shall be a horror. You shall be a proverb and a taunt among all the people. Let all these curses come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. My friends, this is what you should hear. This is what I should hear. 
This should be our greeting on the day of judgment. This is the only voice we should hear from God. But that voice fell upon his son. Now I realize this content has been pretty heavy and pretty dark. But remember, in order for the good news to be glorious, the bad news must be devastating. It must grieve our hearts, and hopefully it does, such that when we consider the other side of this, the glory shines. Look down again at Galatians 3. What are the first few words of verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does that mean? It means that the curse is no more for us. He, as it says in Psalm 75, drank the cup of the wrath of Yahweh down to its dregs. Why did Jesus drink the fullness of that cup of the Father's wrath on the cross? So that we could know nothing of his wrath. Look again at Galatians 3, verse 14. Christ became a curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Friends, on that cross, God treated Jesus, the perfect, holy, and blameless one, as if he were a lawless, rebellious, covenant breaker so that he could treat us for all of our days as if we were perfect, obedient, covenant keepers. And friends, here's what I hope you can walk away with today. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God, and in his wrath-bearing death on the cross, then God, today and tomorrow and forever, God smiles on you with nothing but blessing. Think of the line in the hymn, Jesus, I my cross have taken. See what father's smiles are thine. Your father's smiles are yours. You in Christ are his pleasing child. You walk before him by faith and you are blameless. Your prayers and your ways are a pleasing sacrifice to him. He smiles on you. He is working everything, even the things that feel more like a frown than a smile. He is working all of them from now until the day you see him face to face to do good for you. Even suffering has become his instrument to move you closer to his goodness and his blessing. Sword, famine, and every kind of adversity are his tools to bless you by making himself and his promise more precious to you, even as this world and its troubles fade away. Friends, in our mighty, broad-shouldered Savior, our curse, my curse, your curse, was completely and gloriously removed according to God's perfect law. Jesus bore his Father's angry frown so that we could know nothing but our Father's smile of blessing. It's glorious, isn't it? Now briefly... What does this mean for our day-to-day lives and for those to whom we minister? I think you've probably caught a glimpse of that already. But further to that, perhaps you've heard some of the stories of the martyrs in the early church. I think this is instructive for us. How many of them died on a Roman cross like Jesus, and some were even lit on fire, their burning bodies used to light the streets of Rome. These saints quite literally had to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus. And do you know that their stories preserved down through church history tell us that many of these went to their crosses singing and, jo- singing and joyfully declaring God's goodness? Why? How could they be so full of joy in those horrific circumstances? Because they knew this glorious truth, that their father was smiling on them even as they went to their crosses. Jesus had borne the full fury of God. By comparison, the full fury of Rome was nothing to them. Because the frown of God had crushed their Savior, therefore they knew the frowns of men and of their circumstances could not touch them. 
And so it is with you and for those to whom you minister. You may not be called literally to a cross, but you are called to do hard and painful things. You are called to obey God's word day in and day out. And perhaps especially when it feels like obedience would be easier. I mean, sorry, when it feels like disobedience would be easier and feel better. So it's just a constant. This is the outworking of our day-to-day lives. Hard things that we are called to do. And so, with the idea of enlarging your heart to run in his ways, let this truth free you to joyfully submit to your father's good instructions and to his difficult providences with your whole heart. Even in your worst circumstances, even in your death, because of his complete removal, because of his complete forgiveness of your curse in Jesus, again, as the hymn says, see what father's smiles are thine. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, this is your gospel. And we thank you for it. We thank you, Father, that it is so gloriously and meticulously unfolded for us in the words of your book. And Father, that you have revealed this to us ultimately in these last days, it says says in Hebrews, in your son. Father, we rejoice in this glory. We rejoice in the fact that you made him to be a curse for us so that we could know only your smile of blessing. Father, I pray that this would have its intended effect on our hearts, that this would be the energy that you powerfully work in us, Lord, that we would strive with that energy, with that might that you give us through the gospel. Father, that this would be the truth that enlarges our hearts. And Father, that we would run in your ways. And Father, that part of that would be not growing weary and well-doing. I thank you for these dear ones and for the ministries that they have at their respective churches. And I pray, Father, that that this lecture and that all of these lessons that they get to sit under, Father, would have that effect of renewing them, of enlarging their hearts and giving them energy uh, to do the work to which you've called them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.